morning. The good morning. The scripture text for this morning is Matthew chapter six, verses sixteen through eighteen, which can be found in the Pew Bible, page eight hundred eleven. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Please be seated. Well, would you like to know what the biggest diet revolution since Atkins is? I don't know what it is, but according to the British newspaper, The Daily Mail... It's the fast diet. So here's the book. I got it from the Wilmington Public Library. It was a number one New York Times bestseller, and it's also an international bestseller, um, published in 2013. It's called The Fast Diet. And let me read to you the subtitle. It says, Lose weight, stay healthy, and live longer with the simple secret of... Intermittent Fasting. This book is only one uh, recent example of the contemporary health craze of fasting and detox diets. Have you noticed all the books about fasting and detox and all the talk in the media? And the medical studies actually seem to support some of the beneficial health claims made for fasting. So fasting, it's all the rage now, at least in the American health and image-conscious subculture. As you may know, fasting is also one of the five pillars of Islam. It is one of the most fundamental religious activities in their religion, along with prayer and giving, pilgrimage, and the recitation of their central creed. And during the 29 to 30 days of Ramadan, Muslims will fast from dawn until sunset. They won't eat or drink anything during the daylight hours. And according to a Pew Research Center report, 93% of Muslims say that they observe Ramadan. So if that is accurate, then almost 1.5 billion Muslims fast an entire month every year. Now I wonder, has anyone in this room completed a 30-day fast? Or a 30-day partial fast? How many of us have fasted at all in this past year? There may even be some Christians here this morning who have never attempted a fast 
for spiritual reasons. So while the health experts are recommending fasting and our Muslim neighbors are observing extended and regular fasting, where is the evangelical church? It seems to me that there is a famine of Christian fasting in our day. It is perhaps the most neglected and misunderstood of all the Christian disciplines. This morning is the second sermon in the series, Renewing Disciplines. Last week, you will remember that Pastor Tyler preached on prayer. He referenced this book, which Pastor Chris chose as Bethel's Book of the Month for January. It's Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And it will be uh, available for purchase next Sunday. And this is an appropriate book for this month because it reinforces the two sermons that Pastor Chris is planning for the next two Sundays, which will be on the topic of giving. And it reinforces this two-part series on renewing disciplines. And fasting certainly has the potential, by God's grace, to bring personal and corporate renewal. But for many of us, it is not a matter of renewing this discipline. It is a matter of starting it. This morning we are going to consider Matthew 6, 16 through 18, and more broadly, the topic of Christian fasting. What can make fasting a distinctively, uh, distinctively Christian practice? What are the potential dangers of fasting and what are its benefits? We will seek to answer these questions in three points, which in good Baptist fashion all start with the same letter. We will consider the practice of fasting, the purpose of fasting, and then the prize of fasting. And one more word of introduction. You may wonder from time to time how preachers choose their sermon texts and topics. In this case, I volunteered to preach on the subject of fasting because I wanted to study this topic and I knew that I needed to hear this message. I am weak in this area of discipleship. So I want you to know that this morning in particular, I am preaching to myself. So first, the practice of fasting. And for this first point, I want to focus our attention on a single word in Matthew 6. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 6, look at just a single word that is packed with so much weight. It's the word when. As many have noted, Jesus does not say to his disciples, if you fast. He says, when you fast, which indicates that he expects his disciples to fast. Furthermore, as Tyler pointed out last week, look at verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus assumes his disciples will pray, and then he instructs them how to pray. Look also at verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. 
Jesus assumes his disciples will give, and then he instructs them how to give. Therefore, in teaching his disciples about fasting and saying, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, Jesus assumes his disciples will fast, and then he instructs them how to fast. For Jesus' disciples, fasting is expected to be as regular a part of their devotional practice as giving and prayer. A few chapters later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus teaches again on fasting. Uh, You don't need to turn there yet, but in Matthew chapter 9, the disciples of John came to Jesus and asked him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So clearly there's an expectation that those seeking God would fast. And Jesus' response is instructive. He could have said, My disciples do not ever need to fast. But he did not say that. Rather, he said this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So we'll return to this passage later on, but at this point we simply note again that Jesus expected his disciples would fast after he was taken up from them to heaven and then continuing on through this present age. And that is exactly what we find the early church doing. We read twice in the book of Acts that Christians were fasting. The church of Antioch is fasting before the Spirit sends out Barnabas and Saul on the first missionary journey. And in the next chapter, we read this. And when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So it appears as if fasting were a regular pattern in Paul's installation of new church leaders. He apparently did this in every city. And the Didache, which is a very early Christian document, urges believers to fast twice a week. So Jesus expected his followers to fast, and the earliest Christians did fast regularly. However, I would guess that many people in this room, whether you verbalize it or not, whether you would consciously admit it or not, think of fasting as an optional practice. Maybe it's just a practice for radical Christians. Maybe some of you associate fasting with a certain brand of ascetic or legalistic Christianity, and you don't want any part of it. Yet, what are we going to do with Jesus' clear expectation here in Matthew 6? Verse 16 says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. And verse 17, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Friends, fasting is neither misguided nor radical. This is normal Christianity. This is a regular and expected part of following Jesus. 
And furthermore, Jesus sets the example for us. Remember that immediately after his baptism and before his public preaching ministry, Jesus himself fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. If there was anyone who ever lived who did not need to fast, it would be Jesus. And yet, apparently, it was necessary for him to engage in this lengthy fast before he did anything else in his ministry. So what are we going to say? Jesus needed to fast, but we do not. Do we somehow think ourselves above fasting while our master and Lord subjected himself to it? Do we consider it optional or inconsequential for modern Christians when Paul, Barnabas, and the early church seem to think fasting indispensable? Perhaps we need to admit this morning that we have neglected a spiritual discipline here that is more important than we realize And our neglect has been to our own detriment. So the people of God clearly practiced regular fasting. But now let's examine why they fasted. The purpose of fasting. In preparing for this sermon, I did a simple word search using a computer concordance, which is something all of you could easily do online. And I surveyed all the places in the Old and New Testaments that describe people fasting. I found 33 biblical instances of fasting. There's probably a few more. And I asked myself why fasting was being practiced in each instance. Again, this is a study you could easily do to reach your own conclusions. But in my view, fasting was practiced for at least six interrelated reasons. So the first reason, fasting could be an expression of grief. For example, in 2 Samuel 1, when David hears news that Saul has died, he took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Fasting is a natural reaction to shock and sadness. Think about it. No one should say, my mother has died. Oh well, let's go get a burger. You know, No, fasting can be as natural Uh, an expression of grief as weeping is. It's not as if you plan to do either. It just feels like the right thing to do. Secondly, fasting could be practiced as an expression of contrition. This kind of fasting is similar to the first, but in this case, the grief is a grief over personal sin or national sin. Listen to this example in Nehemiah 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins 
and the iniquities of their fathers. Likewise, in 1 Samuel 7, it says, All Israel gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. I think this is a form of fasting that we should practice more today. When you come under a particularly strong conviction of sin, you should consider repenting by confessing your sin and fasting. Fasting, in this case, would be a healthy expression of your godly sorrow. But just remember that it is the heart and not fasting alone that most interests the Lord. In Joel 2, the Lord instructs his people to fast. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. An outward fast, apart from a repentant heart, does not please God or commend us to Him in any way. And yet, sincere sorrow in the heart does not render fasting or weeping worthless. God delights in being merciful when His children confess their sins and fast as an expression of their contrition. Thirdly, among God's people, fasting could be an expression of a desperate desire for God's grace. And as such, it was always accompanied by intercessory prayer. Let me give you two examples of this kind of fasting in the Old Testament. First, there is an awesome story of God's grace in 2 Chronicles 20. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn there. 2 Chronicles 20 can be found on page 372. And I want to to read the first four verses here and then a little bit more. Just to picture the scene. This This is an amazing chapter and I would commend it to you to read the entire thing later today if you have the time. 2 Chronicles 20, 1 through 4. After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mennonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So then, as the story goes on, Jehoshaphat stands in the midst of the assembly and prays an incredible prayer. And it ends like this. Look at verse 12. He says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but 
but our eyes are on you. Just, I, I love that verse. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So in this instance, what is the occasion for the fast? The people of Israel need deliverance and guidance. So the king proclaims a fast, and all the people seek the Lord. That is why I would categorize this fast as an expression of a desperate desire for God's grace. Consider one other example. You don't need to turn there this time. In Ezra 8, uh, verses 21 through 23, we read this. This is Ezra speaking. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good, is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Ezra, like Jehoshaphat, called for a fast and prayed for God to intercede and prayed for his protection and guidance. Ezra and Jehoshaphat could simply have prayed. So why do they feel it necessary also to proclaim a fast? Apparently, they found fasting to be a uniquely suitable way to express their urgent need for God's grace. It seems as if fasting, in a sense, intensifies the prayers of God's people. Now, at this point, I want to push a little further into why fasting is such a suitable or fitting expression of grief, contrition, or an intense longing for God's intervention. What is it about fasting in particular that makes it a God-ordained means of intensifying our prayers? Before pressing deeper, let me reiterate that there is nothing magical or mechanical about fasting. It's not at all that fasting forces God to act. Indeed, we see in Isaiah 58, among other places, that when fasting is combined with injustice and disobedience, it is an abomination to God. Remember also that the Pharisee of Luke 18 claimed to fast twice a week, and we have no reason to doubt him. But it was the tax collector who cried out for mercy that went home justified. So fasting as an outward religious activity does not in itself commend us to God. However, when fasting is practiced in the proper way, it is especially pleasing to God, and I think we heard a hint of the reason why when I read the passage from Ezra 8. Listen again to Ezra 8.21. Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there, at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey. Do you catch that? This is the fourth purpose of fasting, 
A God-honoring fast is a way of humbling ourselves before God. Listen to a very interesting passage from Psalm 69. Zeal from your, for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. What struck me about this text is that the psalmist says that he humbled his soul by refusing to feed his body. The outward action of fasting had an inward and spiritual effect. And it is not hard to understand why. We are holistic creatures, unified in body and soul. What happens to our soul can affect or manifest itself in the body, and what happens to the body can affect the soul. When we fast, we deliberately put our bodies in a posture of weakness and need. We are temporarily depriving our bodies of their strength. When we fast unto the Lord, this bodily weakness can be an expression of and even a means to the humility of our souls. We become acutely aware of our dependence upon God in a way that would not be possible without fasting. We recognize at the gut level that we live upon His provision alone. And again, you might press me and ask, how does this work? How does God use fasting to increase humility and dependence? And at a certain level, I cannot explain why fasting works the way it does. But I did think of an analogy that might help. Think about music and singing. Why do Christians express their praise and worship through a peculiar vibration of the vocal cords that results in a distinct verbal sound? Why not just speak out their praise? And can you explain why sometimes your heart demands that you not only speak the truth of God's word, but also sing it? You just burst into song. And have you ever noticed that <clears throat> singing not merely expresses our emotions, but can also intensify them. Some of the sweetest times of communion I have had with the Lord have come while I've been surrounded uh, with the music and singing of God's people. So why would God ordain that using our ears to listen to music and our tongues to sing Christ-exalting lyrics would express and bring about profound spiritual emotions? I don't know. I just know that singing does that. And I don't know exactly why fasting should sharpen our desire for God. But it does. It just does. And let me take a slight tangent here to address the issue of fasting from things other than food. Sometimes it is said that we should periodically fast from shopping or watching TV or playing video games or whatever. 
Now, no doubt there can be some spiritual benefit to abstaining from something that has an unhealthy grip on your heart. Yet in the Bible, fasting is only ever applied to the voluntary abstention from food. So I hesitate in speaking of fasting from TV. Giving up TV does not put you in the same position of bodily weakness and dependence as giving up food does. It seems to me that fasting from food is unique because it touches our deepest and most basic human cravings. So by all means, fast from TV if you feel the Lord is leading you to do so, but do not let your fasting from TV substitute for your fasting from food. Fasting then may express grief, contrition, a desperate longing for a particular need, or humility before God. And certainly these purposes overlap quite a bit. The fifth reason for fasting is simply to worship God. Don't you admire the prophetess Anna who welcomed the arrival of the baby Jesus in the temple? You remember how the Gospel of Luke describes her? It says this of Anna. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna worshipped with fasting. How does one worship with fasting? Luke does not elaborate, but I think the answer is clear enough. Fasting becomes worship when we hunger for God more than we hunger for food or anything else. Fasting is a way of saying with our bodies, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Fasting can be a physical demonstration of our allegiance to God alone. In the case of the hypocrites in Matthew 6, however, their fast revealed their allegiance to something other than God. If you still have a finger in Matthew 6, you can look again at verse 16. It says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. The hypocrites' fasting was not an act of worship, but an act of idolatry. Their God may not have been food, but what they wanted more than food was the praise and the recognition of people, not God. Therefore, when we fast, the message that our fast should proclaim is not, look at me, look at my willpower. Aren't I a spiritual and pious person? should not be that. Neither should it be, Oh, poor me, I'm so gloomy and pitiable because I'm so weak and hungry. No, our fasting should proclaim, I'm needy, God. 
I'm so weak in myself and so dependent upon you. Without your power and your presence, I could not live. In other words, our fasting should testify to the truth that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when our fasting says that, it is a profound act of worship. Of course, we can glorify God with our eating and drinking too. Yet in this world where sin can distort the good gifts that God gives into competitors with God for our affections, I think the Christian life is meant to flow in a regular rhythm of feasting and fasting. Feasting and fasting. The dominant mode of our lives should be feasting. We should be enjoying all the good gifts that God has given to us, savoring God's grace reflected in them, and letting our satisfaction in good food, among other things, rise to God in the form of thanksgiving and praise. That should be the dominant mode. However, our experience of enjoying food and other things should be punctuated with times of fasting to say, God, I want you more than all of your gifts. And when we fast, we may just find that the pull of the things of this world is much stronger upon us than we realized. Fasting can be like a spiritual detox, a test of what's really inside of our hearts. Deuteronomy 8 commands the people of Israel to remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God can use fasting as a test of our hearts to show us what's inside of us. And he can use fasting as a means of teaching us to rely upon his words alone. For those of you who have fasted before, you may have noticed that during a fast, you are tempted to irritation or self-pity or distraction or despair or self-righteousness. Rather than a sign that fasting is producing these sins in our hearts, fasting is the means God is using to expose them. As a kind of spiritual detox, we may notice that during a fast, these sins are leeching from us. Richard Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, claims that more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. So fasting can be a bodily expression of our worship, but it can also be an indicator of our idols. So often, during fasting, we are fighting to worship. We have covered five of the six reasons for fasting, and you may have noticed that I haven't yet mentioned what makes fasting a distinctively Christian 
practice. The old covenant people could fast as an expression of grief, contrition, desire for God's intervention, or humility. And in those instances, their fasting could be an act of worship. But how does Jesus and how does the gospel transform the way that we should fast? I want to return to what may be the most important passage about Christian fasting in the entire Bible. And please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. I already made reference to this passage, but we're going to examine it again together. Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17, page 814 in the Pew Bible. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." Now, certainly an examination of this passage could easily fill a sermon of its own, but let me briefly point out a few things. First, notice that Jesus did not think it appropriate for his disciples to fast while he was with them. This implies also that there will be no fasting in the new heavens and the new earth. The immediate presence of Jesus banishes fasting. When Jesus is with us in the flesh, we should be rejoicing, not fasting. And that's what we'll do forever and ever in the new earth, where food and other things will no longer compete with God for our hearts. However, also notice in Matthew 9 that Jesus did expect his disciples to fast when he was away from them. This leads me to see a sixth purpose for Christian fasting that provides the context for all the others. Fasting is a way of saying, Jesus, we want to be with you. We miss you, and our hearts and our bodies ache for you. Come back. Then in verses 16 and 17, Jesus makes the point that this kind of fasting is new and different from the old way of fasting. What is new is that Jesus had brought the kingdom. He had made God known and fulfilled every promise that God made for our salvation, at least uh, started to. And the fact that Jesus has come transforms everything. No longer do God's people mourn and fast, waiting in expectation for the Messiah. He has come. And in his death for our sins and in his resurrection for our new life, we have tasted of God's grace in a way that makes us hungry for more. We can fast in anticipation of Christ's return because we know how sweet 
his kingdom is. Fasting looks back to the gospel of grace and says, yes, that satisfies the hunger of my soul. I want more. And fasting looks forward to the return of Christ and says, yes, how sweet that will be. So fasting ought to be an expression of our desire for more of Christ. Finally, we've considered the practice and purpose of fasting. So just briefly, what about the prize of fasting? In Matthew 6, a hypocritical fast is rewarded by the fickle and ultimately hollow approval of man. Yet Matthew 6.18 promises us that when we fast for God, He will reward us. And the reward corresponds to the purpose of fasting that we have just investigated. When we fast and pray for God's forgiveness, for His power, for His grace, and ultimately His presence, the reward is all of those things. More of God himself. So the question becomes this morning, why don't we fast? Why doesn't the American evangelical church today fast? We will not fast unless we believe two things. First, we must believe that God will reward our fasting as he promises to do so in Matthew 6. We must believe that fasting actually has spiritual benefit, a benefit that won't come to us any other way, and that it is indeed a means that God has ordained to bring about a sweeter communion with Him. And second, we must believe that more of God is worth more than our comfort. We must believe that being full of God is better than being full of food. And here I just want to say a brief word to any of those who might be visiting with us who haven't tasted and seen of God's goodness. And just ask yourself, please, this morning, have you ever felt an ache and a hunger in your soul for something more? Maybe something that you can't even express. And if so, you will never find the satisfaction for that hunger in the things of this world because you were made for God. So I just urge you and beg you to come to Him and eat. And here is my New Year's invitation to all the church. I could say challenge because I know it will be difficult for most of us but I don't want us to view fasting as something merely to grit our teeth and bear. I say invitation because I want you to believe that there is blessing here and that fasting is for your good. My invitation for you is to join me in fasting for at least 24 hours sometime in the month of January. Now, there may be some of you who have legitimate medical reasons why you can't fast. You may be pregnant or diabetic. 
But getting headaches during a fast is not a medical reason not to fast. When you feel sick, when you feel nauseous and you get those hunger pains and headaches, when your body is screaming, hey, I'm not used to this and I don't think I like it, then turn all of that discomfort into prayer. Think about it this way. If you are terribly out of shape and you decide, I'm going to go for a mile run today as a New Year's resolution, and you, you know, lace up and you go out for a run and, wow, during the run and after, you're just sore, your body aches, you feel awful, you might conclude, well, exercise is not for me. I guess I don't need it, right? But you shouldn't conclude that. And if you are hurting and distracted while you fast, it doesn't mean that fasting isn't for you. In fact, it means that you probably need fasting more than others. <laughs> and I think as an American church, when our brothers and sisters in other places of the world put us to shame with their practice of fasting, this discipline is one that we particularly need in our self-indulgent society. When we are trained from the cradle to the grave to alleviate every sign of discomfort and unease. We need this discipline of fasting. And I wonder what the Lord might be pleased to do if dozens and dozens of believers here at Bethel fasted in the month of January and cried out to the Lord, feed us with your word and with more of your grace. What would the Lord do if a multitude of voices were raised to him in desperate, aching prayer for more of his power in our midst? What would the Lord do? I don't know. But I would like to find out. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction that it brings. I thank you for the conviction it has brought me this week. And Father, we thank you also that you have held out to us the promise of reward if we would only take it. A promise of reward through proper fasting. So God, please pour out your grace. Help us to renew this discipline in our lives that we might have more of you. That's what we want, God. We desire to have you. And we pray that you would give of yourself for your name's sake. Amen.